the trials of Jesus and Paul. Uh, so I want to I want to get into it. I, I as I was doing some research, um, I saw a quote that I wanted to read to you and get your thoughts about. So. Um, There is a people on earth that wages wars for the freedom of others at its own expense, its own toils and risk, and stands firm, not just for those at its borders or peoples in its near vicinity or those joint by connecting lands, but crosses the seas so that there would be no unjust rule in the world and justice and divine and human law would everywhere prevail, it says. Who who, who do you think that's referring to? I hope Christians. Who, Who do you think that's... Livy wrote that about the Romans, right? But, but uh, it, it's a good reminder. Everybody thinks they're the good guys, right? Um, I read that you could almost like superimpose that into like an American politician saying that today, right? I mean, it's, it's almost exactly verbatim. It, 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 it's worth, worth remembering uh, that there are two sides to every coin. Um, and if you could show the next one, uh, Richard, that this is actually so. The, uh, this is a quotation from Calchagus. He was a uh, a Cal- uh, Caled plunder exhausted the ancestors of the Scottish people. Um, and this is what he said about the Romans. He says, "Seek to, to enslave him. Neither the East nor the West has been able to satisfy them. Alone among men, they covet with equal eagerness poverty and riches. To robbery, slaughter, plunder." They give the, the lying name of empire. You know, those two is very interesting. The world a wasteland. And then they tell us that they gave us peace. Um, so anyway, I, I thought that the juxtaposition of those two is very interesting. The, the Romans thought that they were the good guys, right? They thought that they were bringing the light of civilization and justice everywhere they went. Um, and it's worth remembering as we look at what they did to Jesus uh, and to Paul and how Jesus and Paul reacted to them uh, that... Uh, the, the Romans didn't live up to their ideals, but, but they had ideals, right? They had this idea of justice uh, and uh, civilization and the idea that they were, they were bringing something good to people. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go along. And kind of the genesis of this study is that, that I think I've told many of you that I got really interested in the Bible. Like I, I could feel... Um, could feel the hand of the author um, as a you know, relatively young Christian, you know, college aged. Um, I uh, read the book of Judges, right? And there's this pattern in the book of Judges of that is very clear, right? And it it just had never occurred to me that 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 a, that people wrote the Bible uh, and that they had a message that they wanted to tell me, right? That they had um, I. I kind of thought of it as just, oh, this is an account of what happened. There's some poetry, and you know, it's fine. But I never thought about it on that level. Oh, the, there's an author who uh, is reaching into the text and shaping it, right, and telling a story and presenting it in a way that will impact me as the reader and make me think about it. So, J- Judges is the most obvious example because there's uh, there's this, uh, you know, the the Israelites uh, they start worshiping other gods. Things go bad, they cry out to God, God sends a judge, the judge delivers them, everybody's happy, they start worshiping other God. You know, and just 13 times throughout Judges it happens, and it's like, I wonder what the writer, it's a very simple message, right? Um, but, 
once you see it, you can't unsee it anymore. It's like one of those uh, magic eye paintings. Um, something similar happened to me as I was reading Luke uh, a few years ago, uh, Luke and Acts. Um, at the at the uh, end of Lu- the 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 rising action of the book of Luke concludes with Jesus being brought. Uh, he gets brought before the Sanhedrin, like the Jewish supreme council. Uh, they can't do anything with him, uh, so they take him to Pontius Pilate, the the Roman governor. Series of uh, and then he's tried. Uh, before Pontius Pilate, and then before Herod, and then again before Pontius Pilate. So he undergoes this successive series of trials. If you get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul gets brought before the Sanhedrin, and then he gets shuffled off to the Roman governor, and then he gets shuffled off to another person, and then he gets tried. Right. So there, there's this successive series of trials that parallel each other in each book. Um, and they respond in very, very different ways. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we, we get into the second and third week of this study. But um, it, it, that made me wonder, right? Like, what? okay, well, Luke wrote both of these books. He structured it this way for a reason. What is he trying to tell me? Like, what does he want me to notice about the way that, that Jesus reacts and the way that Paul reacts and what that means? Like, well, why is it structured that way? Um, and I'm going uh, uh, to, I, I demand that you come back in weeks two and three, but I am going to spoil weeks two and three for you now. Um, I, I think that what he's saying, um, and this isn't an idea original to me, but uh, I think that what he is saying, uh, or what he's illustrating with Paul, J- Jesus is uh, external to the Roman system in ways that we'll talk about today. He exists outside of it. They don't know how to deal with him. They don't know how to process him. Uh, Pilate asks him a question and he answers, and Pilate's like, I I don't know. It's like, uh, this crowd may be uh, a little old for this analogy, I don't know, not all of you, but um, it's like putting an Xbox game in a PlayStation, right? It's like, "I I don't know what to do. There's a disc in here, but... Um, or like hearing somebody talk in a foreign language. You, you just, you can't process it. Uh, and that's, that's what you find Pilate doing. He's like, I don't know what this guy did, but he's not, I, I hasn't done, he hasn't done anything worthy of death. And then s- still condemns him to death. Right? The system just, just cannot deal with, with what he has to say. Um, and that's true because of Christ's positioning within culture. Right? He's Jewish. He's not a Roman citizen. It's true because uh, Christ was not... Uh, Christ had a, a, a date with destiny, right? He had a rendezvous on, on Golgotha. He was going to capture death there and drag it into the grave with him and then leave without it. That, that was his job. Uh, and so he, he didn't want to be free. Paul is consistently portrayed as being internal to the system. What, what is, what's the first thing Paul says to anybody who will listen? I'm a Roman citizen. Right? If he had a card, he'd be waving it around. Like, no, you, you can't just scourge me. I'm a Roman. He says that all the time uh, in almost every situation that he can. Um, and, and you find, so Christ's response is always silence uh, or, or misdirection, like answering questions in an ambiguous way. Paul, he, you can't shut him up. He can't wait to talk in front of the court. Um, in fact, he wants to talk to more courts, right? He's like, at one point, he's like, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. 
Um, and that, that's, that kind of narrows his path and leads him to Rome, where, where for all we know, he, he spoke the name of Jesus Christ to Nero. Um, so that, that juxtaposition or that, that comparison of the two of them, I think is very important. But, and you say, well, what, okay, if, if that's the point, uh, Jesus is external and Paul is internal, why, why did Luke write that? I think it's because in the early days of Christianity, right, this is a movement that is existing in the shadow of this oppressive human empire, right? They rifle the ocean, that they're so greedy and so, so brutal, right, that, that if there's any threat to the Roman order, right, they, they, they value peace, they value stability, they value, um, they don't want anybody to make waves, um, and suddenly you have this disruptive, this disruptive belief system that says uh, things that we'll talk about in a minute, which is that, no, no, no the, 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 the poor, this is an upside-down kingdom. The poor should be elevated and the rich cast down. Well, if you're a Roman, you're like, that doesn't sound so hot. Um, so Christianity has to survive in, in this environment where it is being oppressed. Um, and I... I would argue um, that what's being done in, in Luke and Acts with the comparison of these two people is that um, Luke is saying, one, if you are a follower of Jesus, your, um, your life will look like his to some extent. Uh, but you, must, you don't have the option of being crucified and then rising again. So you must find a way to survive. And you will survive and transform the empire by being internal to it, by understanding its systems, by working within them, uh, and uh, coming to understand them in ways that, that Jesus was not positioned by God to do. So we're going to talk about that. Um, and, and the other thing, I, I guess I would say that uh, it worked, right? Like, we're here today, 2,000 years later, talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, and you know, 400 years after Paul, uh, uh, 400 years after Paul died, uh, Christianity was the the official state religion of the Roman Empire. Like it, it worked, right? He he carried the word of God into the heart of the Roman Empire like a, a thermonuclear bomb, and set it off, and it it transformed everything about it. Uh, so I want to talk today about uh, the kingdom of God uh, in the book of Luke. Um, and this is important. Um, Luke's probably the most political gospel. And by political, I mean it's, uh, it has the most to say about the way that the world should work. I, uh, I love that video in part because it, it, it tells the Christmas story in a really powerful way, I think. Um, and the Christmas story really is... It, 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 captures all of Luke's themes about the way that, that the world order that Jesus sets in motion is upside down. Um, we're going to talk about that in just a second, but I, I, I want to also emphasize, so Jesus comes in Luke, and all of his teaching uh, is about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God has two dimensions. There's the kingdom of yet to come, that's what we're going to call it, that there's uh, a kingdom at the end of time, he tells us. And in that kingdom, righteousness prevails and the evil are punished and the nations flood into Jerusalem and they worship God. 
Um, and that, that's emphasized over and over and over again. And the, uh, if, if we were big brain people, we would call it, uh, it's an eschatological kingdom, right? That's, that's what scholars call it. It just means it's a kingdom at the end of time. That's what, that's what the end state looks like. And you can see that all over the place uh, in, in Luke. So many places that we won't go to all of them. Um, and, and that's initiated in part, right? It, it's a place where death has no dominion. Um, and it's initiated in part by Christ's uh, death, burial, and resurrection. That's a central theme of Luke is that um, uh, death will no longer hold sway because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Um, and we're, again, we'll see that throughout Luke and Acts. Um, he talks about, and let's, let's go ahead and turn to Luke 19, 11 through 27. This is a parable. This is a parable that Jesus tells. Um, and and it, the point here is subtle, but I'm going to go ahead and make it anyway. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable uh, because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because, because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Right? So they're like, he's out there preaching about the kingdom of God and they're like, Right now? It's, it's happening right now? And he's like, well, hang on. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign after, over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy, thy, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, uh, have thou authority over ten cities. And the, king, and the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that, that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my, my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And he said unto them that stood by, Take, him, take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, uh, that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. So you're, like, it's not immediately clear, right, what, what the parable has to do with the question, hey, is, is the kingdom of God at hand? But when, but when you read the parable, it's about a, a thing that's going to happen in the future, right? But you have a present obligation to it. Does that make sense? Like, you, you the servant, are given uh, a bunch of stuff right now, um, and you're supposed to use it wisely, um, and the king is returning. But that, the king isn't, it, it, that doesn't happen at this moment, right? So Jesus, that, that's the point, is there's this, uh, this idea of a, a future-oriented kingdom that is coming, and it's going to exist at the end of time. Um, let's go to... Okay, let's go to my next point, actually. So um, I, I want you to hold that in your head, right? The idea that um, 
this kingdom is coming in the future. Um, and it has all of the characteristics that we associate with, the, uh, with heaven, right? It has, uh, there's um, justice and peace, right? Justice rolls down like waters, Ezekiel tells us. Everybody comes to Jerusalem and looks to it for, for governance uh, from the Son of God, right? Everything, all the sad things come untrue. Um, but there's, there's another aspect to that kingdom, right? It, it's also happening now. Let's turn to uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which is in Luke 4, 18 through 19. And this is really what that video is getting at, or really what the idea of uh, an upside-down kingdom is getting at. Uh, 4, 18 through 19. Uh, and actually, let's go to... Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes, so he sat, he didn't go sit down in the front row, like, oh, I'm done reading. He, he sat down in the rabbi's seat, right where he's going to teach. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. We don't have the rest of the sermon, but right, he reads this passage from Isaiah that says, um, the Lord has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, uh, to, to, um, you know, to, heal the, to give the blind sight, to restore the poor. And he says, today, all of this is accomplished in your, you're, you're watching it happen right now in real time, he tells them. Let's go to Luke 1, 46. This is um, the passage that's commonly called uh, the Magnificat. It's Mary's, uh, Mary's song uh, after uh, she is visited by the angel. 46. And this is sort of the thesis statement for the, the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done, me, hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away empty. He hath opened his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Right, so immediately there's this idea present in the coming of the kingdom that, that everything gets reversed, right? There's a great change coming, and the, the poor will be filled, and the rich sent away empty. Right, that this world order will this this change in the world order will happen as a result of 
of what God is doing uh, in the form of Jesus. Let, let's turn to Luke 3.11. This is uh, John to his disciples. Uh, verse 10. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and said, saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Right, so the, the immediate response is, give your stuff away. Right? Look out for other people. Right? Consider other people before yourself. Let's go to Luke 22, 25 through 30. Yeah, so the, these are Jesus' instructions uh, to his disciples about their mode of life. Um, in the, the Roman system, um, th- there was a system called clientele, uh, which you know, we, we get our word clientele from that. Uh, but the idea was um, that y- you as a rich person uh, would be a patron for others. Um, and it, not, it, it um, in many ways bears a huge resemblance to like, what we think of as like mafia culture. Like, uh, you know, I'll do you, I'm going to help you out and you owe me, and you say, well, what do you owe me? And I say, well, maybe you'll do me a favor sometime, uh, right? Like, that, that's really how it worked. Um, like, the, the, a person who had a lot of money, uh, a lot of social, social status and a lot of substance uh, would, um, would gain, gain more status and more favor for himself by doing things like holding feasts. Um, by uh, establishing himself as a patron of various persons in his in his neighborhood, uh, and then they would they'd owe him a favor, right? And eventually he might call that in. Um, so this this network of clients uh, and this network of patrons is is kind of how power happened. Um, and Jesus says in verse twenty five, he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, right? They're, they're patrons. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat. But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Right, that, that they, are, they, like him, are to be servants. Right? And, and by being servants, right, in the upside-down kingdom, right, you, you get to be a king. But, but first you have to be a servant. One more, uh, and then I, as we turn to Acts, uh, two books over, you will see that they actually executed this in, in real time uh, in their uh, in the uh, the first believing communities. So Acts four thirty two, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them uh, that ought of the, that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Right. So their, their mode of life tracked exactly with what Jesus 
had said they should do, right? Which is, don't worry about things, right? Don't, don't, don't get too uptight about it. Sell what you have, right? And, and work together so that no one lacks anything. Why? Because the ones who are on the bottom are going to be on the top in the coming kingdom, right? It's an upside-down kingdom. Don't, don't look to put yourself above others. Um, so I, I, I want to tie those two things together. Um, we talk a lot um, in evangelical and kind of modern Christian culture about uh, we're very worried about whether people are going to heaven when they die. And, and that, that's okay, right? There, there's a, that is a concern, for sure. People have to come to a, a believing knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, but we talk about that a lot. Um, the, when I read what Jesus had to say in the book of Luke, uh, in John and Matthew and Mark, what I see him most concerned about is bringing heaven to earth, right? in your actions, in your attitudes, and the way that you treat others. Uh, being a Christian, being a believer, is like being a time traveler. You say, what kind of crazy thing is that? Well, you, you have glimpsed a kingdom from the future and sworn your allegiance to it. It's your duty now to act as if that kingdom exists in the present age and to treat people like they will be treated in that kingdom, right? That, that's why it is so important that we model Jesus and not be respecters of persons, Right? Um, that's why it is so important that we look out for the, the marginalized and the, the poor people in our communities and help to raise them up. That's, that's why it's imp- the, the material service of the church is important. It's why we do a lot of what we do. Um, it's because Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of nobodies. And the place to start is to realize that y- you are nobody. <laughs> right? Like it's, if, if that requires you to get rid of your stuff, you should take a long, hard look at your stuff. Um, I, and I, I like stuff. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, I, uh, my wife can tell you I spend a, an inordinate amount of money on a, all kinds of useless stuff. Uh, it's like we all do, probably. We live in, a, in an age of material wealth. But if that's an impediment or that makes you look at other people um, in a way that is, is not uh, sanctioned uh, by the kingdom of heaven, you, you ought to give it up. Um, our duty is to live now as if, the pre- as if the future age has come, as if it exists among us at this moment. 